0: When I published Ulysses by James Joyce
1: in my little bookshop called Shakespeare and Company in Paris.
2: Look, look, the dust is growing.
1: My branches laugh larger than
0: Stately clumped back All perfume, yes, and his heart was going like mad. And yes, I said, yes, I will, yes.
2: Hello, and thanks for tuning in. Usually at this point, I would read a show-offy little introduction. I've written (laughs) parodying various of the stylistic elements deployed during one or other of the chapters of (laughs) Ulysses under consideration. But frankly, given that today we're discussing Oxen of the Sun, I'd say Mr. Joyce has show-offy little literary parodies well and truly covered. So instead, I'll just say welcome to Bloomcast. I'm Adam Biles, and as always, I'm joined by my fellow travellers, Alice McCrum and Lex Paulson. Hello. Hello. Alice, Lex, welcome. So we are 14 episodes in. Oof. How are you both holding up?
1: (laughs) A big oof. (laughs) How are you holding up? (laughs) Well, um, given that there's construction in the apartment below mine, (laughs) I've now, and so I can no longer do my Ulysses reading in my apartment, I'm slightly resenting all of the accompanying texts because I now have to lug. five six seven texts anywhere i go to, to do you,
3: you resent these companions these these they're uh so,
1: I mean, weighty I, companions they're so they so heavy they <laughs> alice is so this harsh. point that we should
2: i should point out that you work in a library <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to lug text anywhere i'm
1: i'm i'm fine um i'm fine mm-hmm. yeah in paris in I'm central fine. paris one
3: does have to look for quiet places <laughs> to read we had a gas leak on our street last night so it was jack oh, cameras well. this morning at 8, 8 a.m yeah. Indeed, indeed. Yeah, and yeah. it's been a it's been a bit of a I mean, as we found out in the last five chapters or so, uh when Joyce gets in a groove, uh the chapters expand and dilate and um and and this is uh this is not the easiest part of the book. But Absolutely. dear listeners, um once you've uh waded through the pasture of oxen, um things really do speed up from here, even though the chapters of Circe and, and afterwards are, are long, they're uh, nowhere near as challenging to the first time reader as the ones you've been through so um, take heart
2: yeah it's all i, I, I was going to say it's all downhill from here but that sounds
1: <laughs>
3: well
2: That's downhill downhill clear. to the brothel yeah. and then uh, <laughs> back to <laughs> bloom's place yeah you you'll be coasting from mm. here on in let's um Or you guys sorry
1: no no uh it's never clear if if downhill or uphill is is easier Yeah,
2: Mm. or is preferable. Mm -mm. Um, Should we leap into some correspondence? Um, So the first thing I wanted to talk about actually isn't exactly correspondence, but it's a few things that came out of a um, conversation I had yesterday with a friend of the bookstore, um, Aaron Budnick, who, if any of you are collectors of rare books, you may have crossed paths with Aaron over the years because he is the rare book dealer to the stars. Um, And he had, (laughs) I know Aaron is a listener to this, to this Bloomfield. So first of all, hello, Aaron. Um, But Aaron gave me a few few stories and a few insights which I wanted to share with you. So um, the first one, um, Aaron was telling me that he introduced Jade Jagger, so Mick and Bianca's daughter to Joyce by giving her a copy of Chamber Music. Um and now he did this um at a a dinner that he was having with uh with Mick and Bianca and Jade and during that dinner Mick told him that jigsaw puzzle the song from Beggar's Banquet was written quotes under the influence of Joyce wow um now make of that what you will but apparently at this um at this dinner Bianca then turned to Mick and said well, you you've never said that before to,
1: <laughs> You you don't (laughs) read (laughs) Joyce. Well,
2: to which Mick replied... Nobody ever asked. And besides, it's not very rock and roll, is it, darling? Now, (laughs) pretty rock and roll thing to say, pretty rock and roll thing to say, pretty rock and roll story. (laughs) I would take issue with the fact that Ulysses isn't rock and roll, because uh, I think it's uh, as as far as literature goes, it's pretty much as rock and roll as you get. It's certainly
1: on the other hand, it's it's like the least don't ask, don't tell book. It's the book that everyone wants to brag about the fact that they've read and mm -hmm. love reading.
3: Unless apparently you're a 60s rocker. Yeah.
2: (laughs) Now, the other thing that Aaron told me, um, and this feeds back into um, our last episode of Bloomcast, um, was that Sylvia Beach said that uh, Fitzgerald, F. Scott Fitzgerald, worshipped James Joyce. That's her word, um, but was actually quite afraid of him, was actually quite afraid to approach him. And she said that one time uh, in 1928, she and uh, Adrien Monnier cooked a nice dinner, invited the Joyce's and the Fitzgerald's. And uh, André Chanson and his wife, Lucy. And during that dinner, uh, Scott drew a picture in Sylvia Beach's copy of The Great Gatsby um, of what? the guest seated. Now, I'll just show it to you guys. I have a copy here, which I found on the um, on the website Open Culture. So you have Joyce seated at the table wearing a halo. <laughs> this is <amazing. laughs> You have Scott Fitzgerald on his knees, um, essentially worshipping Joyce. Genuflecting, yeah. And you have yeah. Adrien. And Sylvia, at each end of the tables, as sirens, as sirens. That's fantastic! Wow, how about that? Wow! And so this was in uh, Sylvia Beach's personal copy of *The Great Gatsby*, which I believe is in the Princeton archives. But you can find this picture by doing a quick, um, a quick Google search, and it's absolutely charming. So I would, um, yeah, I'd recommend. I'd recommend checking uh, checking that out.
1: There are various bottles of alcohol spilling all over the table. Yeah,
3: Yeah. (laughs) Scotty was not a stranger to a bottle that in Paris. He certainly
1: wasn't because the date it's dated as Paris, comma July. Um, twenty nine, twenty eight. he must have crossed out the two. It after he he's drank so drunk, thing. and yeah. then changed it to nineteen twenty eight. So, do either
2: of you guys have any more comments?
3: I was, Sorry. I was just um, pleased and gratified that some folks on Twitter reached out and said that they enjoyed uh, our little musical interlude at the Ormond Hotel. Well, come last on, last time your little musical interlude. Well, Don't be modest. Hey? I mean, you know, there was a representative of the tone deaf uh, with us, <laughs> um, but uh, he that hath no music in him, um, treason, stratagems, <laughs> and spoilers. <laughs> is that right, Adam? Um, so thank you guys for uh, for the nice feedback. And we'll try to give you uh, little delights like that um, in the rest of the Bloomcast.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now I have two pieces of uh, quick correspondence. So one from uh, Martin Baylis, who is one of our um, uh, frequent interlocutors on Twitter. Um, and he asked the question which I'd like to, to, to put to you to Ulysses Scholars. Um, he said he'd like to know your thoughts on the Gabler edition. Now, Gifford refers to a passage from Scylla and Charybdis, which is not included in the 1922 text or the Bodley Head edition. And that particular passage is, as Martin says, Do you know what you are talking about? Love, yes. Word known to all men. And, crikey, there's some Latin there. Maybe I'm going to la- la- let Lex. Uh, uh, amor
3: vero aliquid aliqui bonum vult unde et ea quae concupiscimus.
2: Uh, are you able to translate that for us
3: on the hoof? Uh yes love truly uh of something to someone uh good uh, so love oh no this is the def actually now I recognize this this is the definition of love that's given by cicero all oh, right okay um that love is to wish good to someone and to and to wish uh, let's see. Hmm. uh anyway i'll give you the cicero in the in the, in the show notes but uh but it's, that, to, it's, a, it's, a, it's a definition of love that means that you want to you wish good to someone and that you also uh you you desire that good things happen to them
2: i have to say Lex, paint me impressed that you're able to recognize cicero's definition of love <laughs>
3: um <laughs> it been six years in the Sorbonne library so <laughs> one of those things stuck i guess
2: um but so martin asks, how does this emission or inclusion impact on the interpretation of steven's word so, th- so
1: so, just so we're clear, this does not appear in the one that we're all reading.
2: Correct. Well,
3: th- there is a reference to the word known to all men in Nestor. Right. Mm. And so I think my recollection of this this little controversy, what is the word known to all men, which is which has been debated um, by Jewish scholars for a long time, uh, is that when Stephen is with the little boy, his student, um, and he we finds very. Uh, sort of awkward uh, and unloved by his peers, but he says, "Well, he was clearly loved by someone." Mm-hmm. And so he realizes in that moment, or the reader is meant to see that that Stephen sees that the one thing you can count on in this whole world is a mother's love, mm-hmm. and that's mm-hmm. Stephen's greatest wound is mm-hmm. that he didn't give his mother what she asked for, uh, namely mm-hmm. that he was going to he was asked to pray for her. Uh, on her deathbed, and so mm-hmm. I think you know we see Stephen in Oxen of the Sun and skill and Charybdis, his traumas coming to the surface mm-hmm. um, in these acts of intellectual um, you know performance and, and bravura um, are always are these little hints of his of his deep um, wound of 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 his dead mother and of feeling kind of uh, guilty and and uh, and that sense of loss, and so. My recollection is that this word did not appear in our text because Joyce was trying to make it less obvious what he meant Mm. (laughs) uh, by the word known to all men. And so he wanted to just perish the thought of being being too clear. He wants to keep the professors debating for hundreds of years. (laughs) So that that was my recollection, is that it was in the first edition, but he took it out to become a little bit more mysterious about what is the word known to all men. Mm. Is Is it a mother's love?
1: I think I have two thoughts. The first is that... If we compare this to the famous phrase, love, I mean the opposite of hate. Clearly, this is doubling down on love in the way that that phrase isn't. And maybe to Lex's point, it's less kind of saccharine as a result. And I think the second point that's worth remembering is that, and this is much more the case with, let's say, Shakespearean folios and quartos, but there are editors who are gatekeepers of these texts and the editors are instrumental in shaping um, our kind of understanding of the text, and so even for a 20th century uh, text like Ulysses, we have to remember that we're working within the purview of the introduction, the conclusion. I mean, whether it's it's wh- whether they are brilliant introductions and conclusions, and whether they are brilliant footnotes and endnotes, um, these are not unbiased comments.
0: Mm-hmm. I-
2: I think that's a that's a really interesting point, actually. And that feeds into something which we'll come on to discuss, I think, in Oxen of the Sun, is sort of how much how much reading around a book does should one have to do in order to get an understanding of what is what is going on I, I
3: don't I think I sort of re-
2: repudiate the question that this is
3: like a, <laughs> a bunch of homework. I think that that J- that Joyce I mean one of the beautiful things about this book is all of the beautiful things that have been written about this book. I mean to me reading Kybert, uh Ulysses and us or reading Frank Budgeons, James Joyce the making Ulysses, it was adding pleasure upon pleasure, right? And and that this is uh, this is this is not homework to mm-hmm. me. This is it is an expansion of the pleasure of reading Joyce is the expansion of reading these companion books. They're really fun to read. In my, I agree. Right? In my, yeah. I
1: agree, and I think the difference here is that if you read *Ulysses* and *Us* by um, Kibber, for instance, um, that is an explicit. He's explicitly saying, "I am going to comment on the book," whereas the uh, inclusion or exclusion of certain phrases or decisions made about words or even footnotes. They're more insidious kind of um, ways of shaping how you view the text. And so Mm. just be wary, I would say, um, of the kind of more insidious um, directions that are in the more, let's say, less obviously accompanying text.
2: Yeah. Although I'd also add to your point, Lex, I completely agree with you. And I think um, all of the kind of reading around I've been doing has
1: enormously,
2: Uh, Increase my enjoyment, and not not just understanding, but enjoyment of the text. But we should also remember that none of that was there in nineteen twenty two. Like that that or you know, we are benefiting from a hundred years of scholarship mm-hmm. and comment and
3: That's true. Although even in the twenties and thirties, we see with Budgeon with with Stuart Gilbert, Joyce was already planting the seeds. I mean he was directly mm. interacting with his first wave of of mm. you know scholars and and mm. friends and and uh, and and devotees. So playing the long game. I playing the long game. Which <laughs> oh, for he someone was
1: playing the longest game, <laughs> yeah. <in>
3: this <laughs> guy. Right. I mean think of all of the all of the writers from this period who died, I mean F. Scott Fitzgerald died essentially in poverty, mm-hmm. um, and, mm-hmm. and and broke down. I mean, Hemingway shot himself. Uh, I mean, many people from this period had very unhappy uh, lives or or ends. And um, mm-hmm. and Joyce, I think more than the rest, he lived. He was a you know war refugee from Trieste to Zurich. He was you know often hard up uh, and going from place to place. But uh, I think he did have a have a longer idea mm-hmm. um, of what. Uh, mm-hmm. Of what this book would mean.
2: So we're just going to put a pin in that because well, I'm sure we'll come back to it for Oxen of the Sun. But um, I will just bring in Rick Steinberger, who wrote something, uh, wrote to us um, asking, could you discuss why Joyce created this narrative abstraction referred to as the arranger? Um, and that's maybe a point for for another um, another episode. But he also says in the Scylla, in the skiller chapter. Is Joyce just showing off what a smarty pants he is? Or is there some other explanation for this fire hose of quotes only understood by the graduate English faculty references? In other words, why is he torturing us this way? Now, you know, you may <laughs> agree or disagree with Rick Steinberger, but I think it's... Um...
1: Poor Rick Steinberger as he turns to Oxnard the Sun. <laughs> well, quite. Right. No, I think
3: I think first time readers, uh, this is a very common reaction. It was my reaction the first time I read. And I think if you only read once and you read with no companion texts, it can seem both Shawafi, annoying, impenetrable, you know, in um, the words of Maureen Dowd, incomprehensible, uh, which again, <laughs> I repudiate the characterization <laughs> of Ulysses as incomprehensible. Um, and uh, and, and I, to me, it's an invitation, right? I mean, both Skill and Shribnus and Ox in the Sun, yes, you don't get it the first time you read it, but then, you know, another few minutes, you read from the Gifford, you read from Declan Codbird, you, you go online and you know, yeah. read Ulysses' project. And all of a sudden you by understanding Shakespeare and, and, and Hathaway, you know a little bit about the the, the the history of you know the the second best bed, just you know, or a little bit about Hamlet. and all of a sudden this new window opens into what Stephen meant and mm. you know what this debate was about or who are the Theosophists and you know the, this Dublin intelligentsia and and Joyce responding to the kind of the Celtic um, you know, Frim Fram mysteries of of uh, Lady Gregory and, and, and mm. Yeats. I think it, it adds, you know, yeah, I, I yeah. Don't, oh, it, it doesn't I feel to me like homework. It feels to me like an invitation to to go to go deeper.
2: Yeah. 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 Well, let's go, deeper, let's go deeper in that case. So before we get to Auction of the Sun, we have Nausicaa, probably, at least I mean, probably one of the most notorious um, episodes mm. Of, mm. of U.S. Each, which we'll come on to discuss why in a minute. But before then, Alice, you're going to recap it for us. <laughs>
1: I just want to point out that I was assigned this recap because I'm a woman <laughs> this was on the homework. podcast. <laughs> and in a very feminist, let's say like first wave feminism <laughs> move, uh, uh, both Lex and Adam shied away from recapping it. So here I am recapping Nausicaa, which follows, I quote, three girlfriends, Sissy, Caffrey, Eddie Boardman and Gertie McDowell, along with Sissy's two younger brothers, Tommy and Jackie, who are playing with a sand co- sandcastle and a bull, and Eddie's even younger brother, Baby Boardman. They are on Sandy Mount Strand and it's 8 pm. Um, and at, at the same time, and here we think back to the interpolations of Wandering Rocks, um, the men's temperance uh, retreat is being held at the Star of Sea Church with rosary sermon and benediction so this this kind of two scenes intermingling and Mm. sound um, and and smells and characters Uh, back to the beach we discover that gertie who is arguably and we'll see why the most important of the three and who is seated at a distance from the other two girls uh and who has a notional beau or boyfriend reggie wiley um and we we discover that his attentions have cooled of late. At this point, another character enters the scene when Jackie kicks uh, the ball that he and Tommy have been playing with well down the strand. Um, and somebody uh, picks it up and throws it back. This somebody will also be important. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the ball lands at Gertie's feet and Gertie, who is finding the twins and baby increasingly annoying, wishing that her friends would take them home, now becomes aware of the attention of the ball-throwing gentleman with, she describes, the saddest face she had ever seen. In the background, again, the interpolations continue, the religious recitals continue, and Gertie is increasingly self-conscious of the man's attention. She begins to swing her foot uh, in time and then more, in and out in time to the sounds of the religious ceremonies. She takes off her hat. The, the, the passions uh, aroused by, uh, her passions aroused by this male gaze are increasing. So as Sissy and Eddie leave, uh, and both of them, by the way, have remarked on the kind of um, unspoken tensions between Gertie and this man, dusk begins to descend and fireworks from further down the strand begin. Uh, Gertie surrenders to the ambiance vowing to be wild, untrammeled and free uh, at this point she notices that, that the strange man's hands and face are working which is to say he's masturbating and she leans back to give him a better view of her legs, in other words she leans into it uh, the scene culminates in, at least in, in, in some sense in Leopold Bloom, for it is he's orgasm described as a long roman candle bursting in the sky above um so that's a kind of culmination in some sense the Gertie at which point gets up to go and bloom uh so now the perspective shifts to his interiority notices that she is lame poor girl he reflects um bloom then goes on to muse wearily that orgasm has left him quite tired on the encounter he reflects too on life birth and death, which reminds him of Mrs. Mina Perfroy, uh, who has been in labor for three days Blimey. at Hall Street Hospital, <laughs> where the next episode will take place. Patrick Hastings uh, notes that these pages offer. Uh, so, so the second part of this episode, these pages offer the novel's most um, uninterrupted stream of Bloom's consciousness mm-hmm. because there's minimal external stimuli. So no other characters with whom it to interact. He is just stationary on a rock rather than moving through mental worlds. Mm. And so he thinks about the psychology of credit and business, Mm. about writing a short story, about getting hemorrhoids, about the similarities between religion and advertising, the life of sailors, so on. After much musing, it's nearly 9pm at this point, he finds a piece of paper on the sand, but cannot make out what is written. Uh, He Mm. in turn decides to write his own note Mm. in the sand. I am A, he writes, too weary to finish. We are invited to finish the sentence for him. He briefly thinks about returning to see Gertie, uh, although I don't think he knows her name, tomorrow uh, on the beach. Um, He even thinks about Boylan and Molly's activities and he's so tired that he resignedly thinks, let him. The episode comes... um, At the end of the episode arrives a little bat, more on this later, Mm -hmm. which flies around the Mm. priest's house. Uh, The clock strikes with a canary bird emerging nine times to announce the hour and proclaim the last word of Blooms, perhaps I am a cuckoo.
2: Thank you, Alice. Now, as I said um, before the recap, this is one of the most notorious episodes of Mm. Ulysses, Um, mainly because it was the, the subject of the first Trial, the first obscenity trial, at least in the U.S. Um, for the book, and the the trial that ultimately meant that um, it was going to be more than a decade after the publication in mm-hmm. France that Ulysses would actually get its um, get its release in the um, in the United States. So we're here to celebrate the centenary of the publication in 1922 uh, by Sylvia Beach, and yet Ulysses was actually serialized. Before that, or at least has started to be serialized in um, the Little Review. And specifically, the Nausicaa episode was published in the 1920, the April 1920 issue of um, of the Little Review. So they'd already um, already published all of the chapters building up to um, to Nausicaa and indeed some of these um some of these 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 books had been seized and burnt by the um by the u.s post office specifically those containing lestragonians schiller and Caridus, and cyclops on grounds of obscenity but they had been seized and burnt but there had not actually been a trial yeah
3: all that shakespeare stuff in the national library was just too much for those u.s customs officers
2: Shakespeare? so you have um, like to me. so the two the two editors of the um the little review were margaret caroline anderson and jane heap um and they were you know despite these the seizures despite these burnings they were nothing if not radical and they pushed on with the serialization of ulysses regardless up to and including uh nausicaa the episode we're now talking about however john s summer sumner excuse me the then secretary of the new york society for the suppression of vice um was shown the issue <laughs> containing nausicaa by his daughter And he had Anderson and Heap arrested and charged with obscenity. Um, The trial took place in February, 1921, um, during which Anderson and Heap were advised not to testify. So they would come across as modest and conservative women rather than what they actually were, which was a pair of radical kick-ass lesbians. Um, John Sumner was the only witness for the prosecution. um, Well, for the defense, um, they called three witnesses, uh, the playwright, Philip Moller. Um, who gave a kind of uh, Freudian defence of, um, of, of the of the, the episode and was told to speak in a language that the court will understand. Um, there was the editor, um, Schofield Thayer, and I was delighted to discover, um, because he's actually one of my favourite novelists and someone who is so sorely overlooked, um, the British novelist John Cowper Powies, mm. um, who argued to the court that Ulysses was, quote, a beautiful piece of work in no way capable of corrupting the minds of young girls. Um, anyway, at one particular fascicle moment um, during the trial, one of the panel of three judges objected to extracts being read out, quotes, in the presence of a young woman such as Anderson, and had to be reminded that she was actually on trial for publishing. Yes! In, <laughs> in, in the first place. His response, however, was that she did not know the significance of oh, what gosh. she was publishing. How could she? Um, at another course. moment during the trial, John Quinn, who was the defence attorney, admitted that he didn't actually understand the book <laughs> <That's
0: so great. laughs>
2: and said that something uh, which might be, per- so he said something which might be pertinent to our coming discussion of Oxen and the sun specifically quotes. I think Joyce has carried his method too far. Um, anyway, in the end, the three judges determined that Nausicaa did indeed constitute obscenity and Anderson and Heap were found guilty, barred from publishing any more of Ulysses and fined a hundred dollars. <laughs> So, as I said, it wouldn't be until 1933 in the landmark trial uh, United States versus one book called Ulysses (laughs) that the judge John M. Woolsey opened the door to the book's American publication by ruling that Ulysses wasn't pornographic, adding. And this is absolutely one of my favorite quotes around Ulysses. In respect of the recurrent emergence of the theme of sex in the minds of his characters, it must always be remembered that his locale was Celtic. And the sea, and his season, spring, which I think is, um, as as... Woolsey Woolsey really nailed it with this. This
3: This is the best written judicial ruling in the history of American jurisprudence.
2: It's really extraordinary. And just to say, actually, if you want to find out more about this, um, Kevin Birmingham's um, most most dangerous dangerous book book. you must read. Really, really extraordinary um, on this on this subject. But let's give the final word to um, to Jane Heap. Uh, Because I think also what Jane Heap had to say will feed nicely into our discussion of this chapter. So she wrote, Mr. Joyce was not teaching early Egyptian perversions, nor inventing new ones. Girls lean back everywhere, showing lace and silk stockings, wear low cut sleeveless blouses, breathless bathing suits. Men think thoughts and have emotions about these things everywhere, seldom as delicately and imaginatively, imaginatively as Mr. Bloom. And no one is corrupted. Can merely reading about the thoughts he thinks corrupt a man when his thoughts do not?
1: And now, of course, in the twenty first century, women are encouraged to not lean back but lean in. Well, I what? think I
3: think we should take this a moment again to praise and tribute, and maybe even raise our morning cups of tea um, to Margaret Anderson, Jane Heap, Harriet Shaw Weaver, and Sylvia Absol- Beach—the <laughs> radical queer women without whom Ulysses would not exist. Indeed. <laughs> Indeed. So here cheers, we go.
1: Cheers! Cheers! And I just want to say have I don't know if this is really the case, but I can imagine uh, very funny anecdotes or kind of uh, images of everyone in in the courthouse. Probably using different texts, trying to find the right line to cite. (laughs) What is the word no double men, Your Honor? (laughs) Am I I'm on page two hundred and (laughs) fifty-four? What page are you on? Can we take it from the middle of this? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) The slipperiness of the prose just undermining the seriousness of the judicial. Mm. So um, <laughs> I guess
2: one of the one of the ways into discussing this chapter, and one of the things that came to me as I was as I was reading it, and I should say at the moment I'm kind of steeped in John Berger for various different reasons, but was something that Berger <laughs> writes at the beginning of his sort of monumental work of um, of art writing. Um, I won't say art criticism because actually when I you know this is a bit of a brag, but when I interviewed Berger back in 2014 and described him as an art critic, he rejected. Uh, the description of critic, because he um, he didn't think that criticism was particularly a part of it. But Berger writes, um, at the beginning of Ways of Seeing, quote, Men act and women appear. Men look at women. Women watch themselves being looked at. This determines not only most relations between men and women, but also the relation of women to themselves. The surveyor of woman in herself is male. The surveyed is female. Mm. Thus, she turns herself into an object of vision, a sight. And that was something which kept coming back to me as I was reading this um this chapter. This tension, I guess, between um between Gertie and and Leopold. Mm. So is he
3: not saying that critically then? He's just saying that this is this is the way it is, folks. That's, <laughs> what, that's, <laughs> this, that's the tone of voice we should imagine it then. Kind of like Aristotle saying that women are you know naturally subservient?
1: Or like Aristotle saying that um, women are hysterical because their hysteria, their uterus is floating around different parts of their body.
0: Mm.
3: Whereas Plato put women in the in the philosopher, philosopher kings. Uh, <laughs> in a city. Uh Aristotle, not the most enlightened on gender relations. But yeah, go ahead, Alice. <laughs> you wanted to um well in. I
1: wanted to I wanted to weigh in by adding another um big thinker to the table. My my theorist is Michel Foucault. We are in France after all, and his Uh, four volume study of sexuality the history of sexuality i think it's a particularly pertinent um, way to think about this episode to use his theory of devices that make manifest sexuality by naming and controlling and analyzing it um these devices he continues uh well he starts he writes about them he says um the wide dispersion of devices were invented for speaking about sex And these devices were invented for having sex be spoken about, for inducing it to speak of itself, for listening, recording, transcribing, and redistributing what is said about it. Uh, In other words, for Foucault, devices control or even coerce sexuality um, through what he describes as discourse, and discourses the relationship between these devices and society. He writes around sex, a whole network of varying, specific, and coercive uh, transpositions into discourse, Um, And we can see this um, totally play out in the episode with Gertie using, to this point, specific devices to construct her sexuality. Um, So this is Joyce writing of Madame Vera Verity, who's the directress of the woman beautiful page of the Princess Novelette, who has first advised her to try eyebrow line, which gave that haunting expression to her eyes, Gertie also interacts with other sexual devices, such as the Ladies Pictorial, which is a woman's publication, which expects that electric blue should be worn, as well as Cleary's, which is a department store where Gertie finds um, what she wanted in summer sales. And it's important to note that um, I think these devices are more insidious than the fact that they're just controlling sex because what they're, in the case of the electric blue doing, Um, they're pushing women towards marriage. They're pushing women in towards certain um, uh, sexual relationships because later in the episode, um, Joyce writes of Gertie kind of thinking, wearing uh, the blue for luck, hoping against hope, her own colour and lucky too for a bride to have a bit of blue somewhere on her. So there's a way in which um, the commercialisation of sex is also kind of trapping women, mm. and
3: especially at this age. I mean, I was thinking, oh, it's such a great thing that modern society that we've moved beyond this kind of commercialization of adolescent uh, sexuality <laughs> and trying to push beauty products Sorry, on young people. How, how, that how we know? The... No, we haven't at all, right? <laughs> so all of this stuff that Gertie's thinking to herself, um, and and the, the you know the discourse of the teen magazine, basically mm-hmm. the teen yeah, yeah. Teen Vogue, um, yeah, is think... so is so much with us, right? Mm-hmm. And I think you know all of us were insecure adolescents and wanted to wear the right thing and mm. and um i mean even book, bookish nerds like the three of us um, the
2: worst kind of insecure, kind of insecure. Yeah, we
3: exactly. saw you we saw the picture of you in the martello tower yeah, exactly. we, know, we know exactly what you were wearing um and uh and i think gertie gertie is gertie's trying to turn the tables i think on that right i mean she you know because of this um, potential handicap. We're not sure if this is a, a, a lifelong handicap mm-hmm. uh, that she has, but she has a limp mm-hmm. um, that um, she, and and we know that she comes from this very difficult family background of an alcoholic father who she still, you know, adores, but mm-hmm. who is has created chaos in their house. Um, at that, Gertie is Trying to process all of that and and take some kind of authorship of her mm-hmm. of her own life in that moment, um, that you know, without shame for her body, mm-hmm. you know that she is um, I don't know t- taking t- in some sense control uh, in, in a society against, where she's and against against all odds against all odds um, she she sees that she has a kind of control over this mm-hmm. person who's who's watching her and she as you said Alice leans into it um we wonder although she you know the question you have to ask is she also trapped in that because mm-hmm. of the male gaze that's her only way of of wielding that power which is which is pretty sad but she she certainly wields the power that society has yeah. you, know, you know enabled her to have she wields it with um with courage i'd
2: like to just pick up on this this thing of but both the idea of kind of devices and sort of products and the sort of commercialization yeah. and also this this, um, this narrative of the of the teen magazine, of the kind of, of the beauty products of the brands. One thing um, that quite kind of improbably, in a sense, came to me when I was reading this was um, Bret Easton Ellis's American Psycho, yeah. um, which is, I think in many ways, I hadn't I hadn't thought about this until reading Nausicaa, but in many ways is kind of, could be seen as kind of a direct descendant of Joyce, because I think of one of the, of a lot of the novels of the last, let's say 20, 30 years, American Psycho is one of the few that absolutely commits itself to the, the vision of the, the voice, the interiority of Patrick Bateman, the mm. Um, mm. The, the protagonist. This is not, um, I, I think, with a lot of uh, sort of first person stream of conscious novels. There's often a kind of a wink from the um, from the author to the to the uh, to the reader about um, about this sort of you know about the author knows what they're doing. Whereas I think with with Patrick Bateman, it's absolutely it's absolutely not the case. Ellis commits to it completely. And I think that kind of level of commitment is something which perhaps Joyce showed more than um, more than any other any other writer that came um, that came before him. But also feeding into this idea of the kind of the commercial product and things like that. And, you know, have we, you know, Lexi jokingly said, oh, we we, we've come past it today. Of course, we haven't. In fact, what American Psycho shows is that it's not so much that women have been liberated from that, but men have actually been pulled into it too. And that we are all sort of perhaps now, uh, more than in Joyce's day, sort of victims of this kind of um, over-commercialization. And, and yeah. made worse by the pandemic. Yeah. I mean, there's a huge yeah. crisis yeah. in
3: mental health. I mean, it's, you know, the kind of the triple whammy of 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 social media, of, you know, the consumer capitalism mm. and mm. and of the, the pandemic that kept kids at home. I mean, there's a, it's in many countries, um, young people right now are having a real, really hard mm. time, and I think you know what, what Gertie's going through will will feel familiar to yeah. a lot of yeah, young readers yeah, yeah. of this book.
1: Yeah, I think it's a great point, and I'm glad that you brought up social media, Lex, because I think it gets to um, it. Obviously, brings us to screens, and which weren't so prevalent. Um, we talked about <laughs> cinema. <laughs> that's hardly right. That's Joyce hardly being the first. Uh,
3: the, you, you said the, the, the volta, first, the volta cinema, the owner of the first cinema in, in, in Ireland. Ireland yeah.
1: <laughs> right, but this is a point that. Um, uh, Kybird makes which is that what's really important about both Bloom and Gertie in the scene is that they're both still and I mentioned mm, this in mm, my um, interesting, yeah. summary and he writes uh, it's the still body of Gertie that seemed beautiful but when it moved a flaw was revealed Joyce was always suspicious of static portrayals and actually um, Bloom mm. himself says that he's she, he's happy that she didn't see his profile in other words they're both they're looking at a flat version of each other That's and I think there is Definitely a point to be made about the flatness of screens, as you say, only exacerbating this problem.
3: Mm. It's interesting because there is, there is, of course, motion—the motion of the fireworks—but it's, it's at a distance, I suppose. It, it, it gives this kind of energy. The, the, ambi- I mean, Budgen calls this the, the one pictorial episode of the 18 mm. and Ulysses the painter's episode because you do have a sense of and you were talking about the cinematic quality of Sirens mm-hmm. this the is this is the you know Nazuka is the episode that feels the most like a painting i mean yeah, I, yeah, I always yeah. think of Surat the the, the 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 island of the the Grand Jatte, you know everybody mm-hmm. kind of lying back on the on the um, suburban um Beach and people forget that Dublin is a beachside city. I, I was surprised to find that out yeah. in June 2004 when I when I when I went there that it's actually quite a lovely quite a lovely beach. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's 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 a it's it's as if they're being, as you said, f- frozen in this kind of static yeah. way uh, yeah. on the, in this gorgeous yeah. scene of you know the golden hour, eight o'clock on a on a June day, you know, very close to the longest day of the year, in which you'd have this golden sort of you know twilight yeah.
2: and then the fireworks. So how does the one bit of motion in the scene, uh, Blooms motion in his trousers in right. some way, um, <laughs> uh, could contribute or undermine that.
3: Mm. Do the locomotion, uh, as they say. Um, well, well I, just, I, I, I just, I just, wanna... <laughs> I just want to. 1950s. Come on, baby, do the
1: locomotion. Sorry. I want to just flag this point because I think it's it will it will pick up something I want to say in the next episode about um writing and words as fixing um motion in the static way so mm. just hold on to that but before i do i have a question to ask my dear interlocutors do Gertie and bloom truly have a connection
3: so we disagree vehemently well,
1: no it's not it's not
2: that we disagree <laughs> um oh, but, but, but i no, disagree Fight. i think we do disagree no, for the purposes right. of let's, for let's, the purposes let's, of let's the, the podcast we disagree yes. um so one thing um the I I read in actually in Patrick Hastings, when he's writing about this chapter, was that Joyce had told Arthur Power that, quote, Bloom's encounter with Gertie McDowell took place in Bloom's imagination. How literally should we interpret that? If we give it a sort of uh if we push it to its extremes, could we contend? And this was a this was constantly the question in my mind as I was rereading Norske. could we contend that Mm. in fact gertie mcdowell that we have actually no access to gertie mcdowell's consciousness Mm. and what we think is gertie mcdowell's consciousness when we're reading it is actually leopold bloom in the height of sort of sexual arousal Mm. and sexual excitement and sexual fantasy constructing this idea Mm. of this young woman leaning back for his benefit Mm. now i actually should say straight up i think there is evidence. Clear evidence for why this is not the case that Joyce kind of sees in the text which I'll come to in a minute but I think this reading does give us a certain uh interesting perspective on um on, on the book so why could I why could I say that well some of the way that Gertie McDowell talks about Leopold Bloom is and it is incredibly flattering actually that um you know in, in, a, in a way that I think a man of Bloom's age and uh, stature might want to be might want to be um, thought about. Mm. Secondly, I think that um, there is something we came we were talking about the 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 project the the products and the devices and there is definitely something very constructed about the consciousness of um, of Gertie McDowell at this point. This is a consciousness of you know of a young lady constructed by magazines mm. by uh novels you know romance novels and hey what has bloom been buying and been thinking about all day the book that he is buying for molly so bloom is mm. steeped in a lot of this literature so it's not beyond his capacity to to create this um to create this sexual fantasy to project mm. himself into um you know to project himself into uh, gertie's thoughts and to, cons- to construct this identity now the argument against, them, which I well, not an argument against, but I think the thing that demonstrates it's uh clearly not true is the fact as mentioned about um, Gertie's handicap, because at mm. a moment she alludes to it, uh, she alludes to, to the accident. Um and yet when it is revealed, Bloom is still surprised. Now, that would not be possible in uh, uh if Gertie was entirely constructed by by Bloom's mm. consciousness. Mm. Um and yet so, so I don't think that is explicitly what joyce is doing but i think one thing that's interesting about that reading is the question that it raises actually does it matter in a society Mm -hmm. which per the john berger quote Mm -hmm. the surveyor of woman in herself is male like does it matter which male is constructing her whether it's bloom or whether it's the kind of the um i say get kind of the meta male of of a social perception of the of the patriarchy Mm.
1: i'd I'd like to i'd like to dive in here um because (laughs) because i think um uh i it's so hard because i mean of course in my opinion she exists right Mm -hmm. as uh, but i think that there's so there's intellectually i want to agree with you because i think that for me um she, it's really sad, but I, I, she's totally powerless. I mean, she, she, as you say, her her consciousness is entirely constructed by, and this is what's for me even uh, more sad. And I'm picking up on Colleen here. This is more than just the general sources of, um, as you say, Adam, romantic fiction or Catholic literature, and even the magazines and um, that she's reading or advertisements. Um, he writes, but to see the style as solely a literary manner maybe too limiting, there is in it a certain tone of voice, the voice of bourgeois Dublin femininity. that is rather more difficult to describe than it is to um, intuit. Uh, So not only has she kind of absorbed, as he writes, like a latter-day Madame Bovary, uh, lessons from popular literature, but um, just being a woman Uh, In Ireland, at this time, existing, uh, surrounded by the social discourse, is shaping her sense of the world. uh, And he writes, the style enacts that entrapment. Mm. And and I think, if only because I feel, Mm. um, I feel that she's possibly the most tragic figure that we've come across so far. Mm. um, I have to, I have to agree with you. Although Mm. of course I think she really exists as a character. That Bovary
2: connection is interesting, Mm. actually, Mm. and made that
3: yeah i mean this this chapter in nausicaa um it wounds me in a way that the, reading the other chapters um mm. doesn't in, in in the same way it, it it um you use the word entrapment and you have to you have to ask your, you have to ask as a as a man i do have to ask a question reading this you know is all um sexuality and sexual connection mm. poisoned by the society that we're that we're born into, which in which those gender relations are so out of balance, right? Mm. And and you know, is this kind of connection that seems to happen in the chapter a trap, actually, mm. Mm. Um, or part of the gaze? And therefore, you know, Leopold Bloom is doing nothing but reiterating the mm. the unhealthy and and. Uh, poisoned, uh, relationships between men and women. And, and I have to say reading this chapter again, it really brought me back to some, some, um, some memories of, of my own, not, I never, you know, was on a beach with a, with a <laughs> girl in fireworks, uh, in this, in this way, but, but, um,
1: In another way, yes. In another, <laughs> in another way. <laughs> um, but in, in this particular way. So
3: <laughs> I, I Look, I think, I think there's something very sexy about sharing a secret with somebody, um, and I think often those of us who have either been the younger lover of, a, of an older lover or the older of a younger, um, there is something transgressive and very electric that can pass between two people uh, who are not, according to society's rules, conventionally supposed to be together. I'm not talking about adolescents and kids. I'm talking about consenting adults, but one who happens to be significantly older than, than the other, whether it's an older woman. Uh, or an older man. And
1: I'm not even talking about myself here. I'm just <laughs> talking, just generally. <laughs> and and
3: and if you look back in in Western literature, whether it's you know Plato's Symposium, which is the older man and the younger man, um, Socrates Venus and Alcibiades, Vetus and Adonis, Shakespeare's sonnets are an older an older mm-hmm. to a younger, um, Dustin Hoffman in The Graduate. Um, <laughs> you know, this is this is a, a, a pattern in. And I think you know from my point of view, there's this there's this paradox. It's totally impossible to untangle because on the one mm-hmm. hand, I think back. To and this actually was the first time I realized in reading this book that um when I was in the younger and when I was in gertie McDowell's shoes um the the older person in, in my life at that point we actually joked uh and her nickname was was Molly bloom in our little, in our little <laughs> right. trip you know we, we give each other nicknames of course, in this and and then and then more recently, um <laughs> maybe I'll just stop there. <laughs> Um, I don't need to I mean, I'm with two Brits here so <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm straying really into grounds of of of, of we don't handle sincerity well but but bloom let me let me let me get to the point yeah, my, my, so. my, my point of why this has felt so deeply wounding is because mm. I don't want Bloom to just be a cad right to just be mm. in the same way that I don't want myself to just mm. be a cad and and to to enjoy these kinds of connections which yeah, now yeah. I look back on because now I'm I'm yeah. happily married I'm about to have a child this is you know from in, in my past a daughter yeah, which is um and that uh on the one hand these moments of kind of secret telepathy where they don't even touch each other they don't even mm-hmm. exchange a word but they have something that seems very meaningful and bloom is very grateful for uh and 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 on the other hand it's a fantasy as you said mm-hmm. they they have these kind of flattened views of each other. Yeah. Gertie is projecting this idea of the dark-eyed sad-faced older man bloom the the the, the beautiful um, insouciant uh, you know young woman uh, on the beach and and of course fantasies always are a part delusional mm-hmm. and so um, this is why I'm de- it, reading this sent me deeply into my own past in, mm-hmm. a, in a very mm-hmm. um, uh, frankly kind of haunting and difficult mm-hmm. <laughs> way.
1: Can I just add on to this because it, it touches on a point that I wanted to make and it it I'm picking up on a remark that Bloom himself makes in this episode, which of course is a famous biblical phrase that this is nothing new under the sun. And I think it's important to draw out mm. the parallels to the Odyssey here because... Um, it, uh, Gertie's relationship to these advertisements is mirroring Athena's relationship to Nausicaa, the young princess who we find uh, in the episode, in the Odyssey um, and so when Nausicaa's waking, which is, all of which is to say why I feel deeply sad about reading this is, this has been going on for thousands of years and I and I also think that it's what when I say this, I'm not talking about the power relations, I'm talking, well, a certain kind of power relations, but just women Um, thinking about their physical appearance for men. So this is from the Odyssey. Um, Nausicaa, uh, Athena wakes up Nausicaa and says, Nausicaa, you must put on beautiful clothing and furnish the garments for those who escort her. Uh, And then she adds, for it from these things, as in the beautiful clothing, that among men noble opinion spreads. And then she says later, I will accompany you as a workmate so that you quickly ready yourself since not much longer you will be a virgin. So there's this sense of, um, yeah, essentially Nausicaa having to put on beautiful clothing, mm. furnishing the garments so that noble opinion about her spreads among men so that she will no longer be a virgin. But use
3: the word ambivalent, which is really important, I think, because mm. even Nausicaa in Homer, she saves you, Odysseus, right? Mm. That, you know, Odysseus is... Now been washed up on the beach in yeah. in um in the land of the Phaeacians and Nausicaa is the powerful princess and he's sure. the, the the marooned sailor yeah. and in that moment she has all the power in sure. a sense and sure. they could have left him on the beach and they and they. Uh, and they save him. So there's this deep, sad ambivalence. I think Alice that you're mentioning yeah. that I find it's um, so haunting. And the
1: power, sorry, but the power just keeps shifting. Yeah,
2: all yeah, over yeah. the place. All over the place. Well, that was something we were going to examine, wasn't it? A who holds the power in this scene? Mm. Mm. And I mean, maybe we've already, maybe we've already <laughs> examined it. Maybe it is that. Maybe it's just like a shifting, uh, back and forth between. Um, yeah, Between Gertie and,
3: and Bloom. And, and in the moment of, of the firework, right, we see also the shift in, in the tone of voice where, <laughs> yeah. I, Adam, I think the best argument for the Bloom projecting this all onto Gertie is what you're saying that when we're aroused, we lose all control, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And, we, and we have this kind of fantasy. And then in the moment right after, yeah. and the, the the Romans had a great phrase for this illico post coitum, cacinus diaboli auditor, one of my favorite. And it means illico immediately after sex. <laughs> the laughter of the devil is heard.
2: That's a brilliant. No, but I mean, that's, that's brilliant. The cackles so of the devil are uh, heard. That so perfectly sums up this chapter as well, because I don't think we can leave Nausicaa behind without talking about how this is written and how you have this kind of, I mean, in, in Patrick Hastings, he talks about a, a tumescence and a detumescence of the chapter. So, you know, up to the climax of the fireworks, but just the, the rhythm of the sentences, the way mm-hmm. it's constructed, the way the, the tension builds, and then that sense of deflation in kind of bloom's refractory period is extraordinarily done could
3: we, could we, could we do one passage maybe of course from we can it? so this is the passage that alice alluded to earlier of the last firework the last roman candles is after he's coming down from from this this climax a long lost candle wandered up the sky from miris bazaar in search of funds for mercer's hospital and broke drooping and shed a cluster of violet but one white stars they floated fell they faded The shepherd's hour, the hour of holding, hour of tryst. From house to house, giving his ever welcome double-knock, went the nine o'clock postman, the glowworm's lamp at his belt, gleaming here and there through the laurel hedges. And among the five young trees, a hoisted linstock lit the lamp at Leahy's Terrace. By screens of lighted windows, by equal gardens, a shrill voice went crying, wailing. Evening telegraph, stop press edition, result of the gold cup race. And from the door of Dignam's house, a boy ran out and called. Twittering the bat, flew here, flew there. Far out over the sands, the coming surf crept gray. Hoth settled for slumber, tired of long days of yum yum rhododendrons. He was old and felt gladly the night breeze lift, ruffle his fellow ferns. He lay, but opened a red eye, unsleeping, deep and slowly breathing, slumberous, but awake. And far on Kish Bank, the anchored lightship twinkled, winked. At Mr. Bloom.
1: Well, you mentioned bats. Yes, we did mention <laughs> the bats. I,
3: with a knowing glance in my colleague's and,
1: direction. Um my colleague, thank you so much. <laughs> That's so 2022 really. <laughs> Um and Adam mentioned many I mean, departing from John Burge's ways of seeing, it seems to me that there are five ways of seeing the male gaze, the female gaze, women watching men watching them, men watching women watching them, and the bat the bat
3: <laughs> um, what is it what does it mean to be a bat? What is it like mean? to be a bat? Well
1: what is it like to be a bat? asked Thomas Nagel in 1974. 1974. Think, yeah. oh, thank you. Um, and this reprises an argument that I'm making the whole whole podcast and I'm so happy to be keep to continue to make it, which is that Joyce is deeply interested in the consciousness of non-human species and we see it again in this episode in a lovely way. Um, so the bats kind of coming in and out of, uh, blooms, a sense of the world. And he says, bar, what is that flying about? Swallow bat probably thinks I'm a tree. So blind have birds, no smell. Here's this word again. Metempsychosis reappears, mm-hmm. which I will remind you is the supposed transmigration at death of the soul of a human being or animal into a new body of the same or different species. In other words, the collapsing of the human non-human Uh, barrier Mm. um he says they believed you this is joyce writing they believed you could be changed into a tree from grief weeping willow bar there he goes he says with the bat funny little beggar wonder where he lives uh belfry up there very likely hanging by his heels and the odor of sanctity uh, he wanders later wonder why they come out at, nice, at, at night like mice they're a mixed breed birds are like hopping mice what frightens them, light or noise uh, better sit still all instinct like the bird in drought, got water out of the end of the jar by throwing in pebbles this is really sweet like a little man in a cloak he is with <laughs> tiny hands, weeny bones almost see them shimmering kind of bluey white he thinks later, who knows what they're always flying for? He's thinking now of insects. Birds, too, never find out <clears throat> what they say, like our small talk. And says she and says he, nerve, they have to fly over the ocean and back. And then on the next page, he just wonders to himself, do fish ever get seasick? <laughs> so, um, Fantastic. isn't that great? And I was thinking about this on my way here and I was looking at observing some crows eating mm. three beautiful baguettes that someone had left on the streets. And I was thinking, I wonder if uh, French and Parisian crows have nicer Palettes than let us say like New York crows, and that if you moved Mm. Parisian crows to New York, they wouldn't want to eat the food that's on the streets of the city. Exactly. Well I actually
2: saw a crow eating the innards of a squashed pigeon the other day, so maybe not. (laughs) Thank you, Adam. Thank you. Maybe (laughs) it was maybe it was an American expat. (laughs) Um, I'm so so happy you brought up Nagel. Can
3: I just say how what a great and great (laughs) reference that is because you know, this was one of the it first seems things. Seems so I obvious. Read. No? Well, for those of us who I guess had to slog through, <laughs> you know, um, contemporary philosophy, but a lot of people have heard of Nagel's essay. But his yeah. point, for those who haven't read, who haven't read the nineteen seventy four, "What's It Like to Be a Bat?" is exactly what what you what you pointed out in in, in this passage, which is because bats essentially see with with a, a sense that we don't have, which is sonar, that even if a bat could speak English and tell you. It wouldn't make any sense, mm-hmm. right? That even if a lion could suddenly start speaking, you wouldn't understand what the lion was saying mm-hmm. because their consciousness is so utterly alien to what it's like to be a, a human being, and and so there's something both deeply sad and also kind of sweet in what you in in yeah. the passage you just read. The sadness that we'll never know. Right, what it's like to be a bat, or what it's like to be to be a fish, or what what it's like to be Gertie Gertie McDowell, mm-hmm. we'll never know. We're, we're we're infinitely separated from each other, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. except for this yeah. fantasy of metempsychosis of our soul leaving our body mm-hmm. and going to another body mm-hmm. that can close the the gap. But or as you say, this imagination, imagination is the is the only other hope that we have to close that separation that, that, that opens between us.
1: Right, that's that's totally where I was going, um, Lex, in the sense of imagination or possibly style. I mean, is, is style mm, right, exactly. a way to capture... This non-human human experience, and it it brought me back to Proteus, the beginning of Proteus, mm-hmm. with the inexplicable uh, modial- modality of the of the visible. You know, this attempt to kind of capture a new way of experiencing the world, perhaps in a bat-like way, or perhaps in the, in the way of other creatures. But the key phrase, just to finish this point here, um, of what is it like to be a bat? Is is the what is it like? Uh, so according to Nagel, a being is conscious just if as as Lex was saying just if there is something that it is like, like to, be that to be that creature, mm. i.e. some subjective way the world seems or appears from the creature's mental or experiential point of view. Voila.
3: Yeah, we can empathize with the bat in a way we can't with our teacups, as yeah. much as we enjoy our tea. Yeah. But we'll never know. We'll never know what it's like to be a bat.
1: But we will try. and we will try. Trying. Valiantly trying. <laughs> that's, the tr- whole, that's the sweetness. Fail and yeah. fail better.
3: Fail, fail, thank you. Thank you. Beautifully said. Should we uh, maybe move? Oh, so here's my last question. Move on. My last question for for Nausicaa is: In the end, is it all about Molly?
1: But you're the one who's going to answer it. Well, <laughs> well I just well,
3: I wanted to throw it out to Adam because if I, if we take this idea that this might have been a projection, or at least this was a fantasy, certainly um, that his return in the end to thinking about Molly. I don't
2: know how, how did you guys. I mean, I'm going guys... to give a very short answer to this, um, and it's kind of put an opinion for future episodes. But I think the whole book is about mm. Molly.
1: Yeah, and I'd say it's always about women, so yes. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, and but you but you said it very well in the in the re, in the recap, Alice, that there's a moment, and it's maybe because he's resigned or tired, but also that he ultimately wants to reconcile with his wife. He yeah. he he believe he loves his wife dearly. He believes that he can he can heal this this wound that's opened between them because of the death of their of their child ten years before. And he knows that this affair with Blazes is boiling he can't stop it yeah right he can only try to understand it to understand Mm. all is to forgive all and he he if he understands Mm. it he can create a new basis to connect with 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 his wife and so this is why he says i think let him meaning let blazes go to belfast with with uh, his wife on the concert tour um that uh stopping that affair in the way that you know Mm. the ancient heroes would have you know hacked the suitors to bits um, bloom is a more evolved yeah. human being uh, for not wanting to well, cause it com- violence it
2: comes back for me it comes back to um, the journey home i mean for Odysseus the journey home was back to Ithaca back yeah. to Penelope mm. for for bloom the journey home is not back to Eccles street as a physical place but it's back it's reconciliation with with molly and mm. at this point in the book we don't know if bloom will reach home mm. or not but i think it ultimately always comes back to that for bloom it's and and in, and in that way it is all about Molly because Molly his home. home. That's right.
1: So, Nostos in the bosom of the heart of a woman.
2: There you go. Couldn't possibly say better than that. Should we, should we do a noticeable? Yeah, very quickly, and then uh, we should move on to Oxen of the Sun.
3: So he's on Hoth Hill, uh, and he's reflecting, um, thinking about Blaze. Hoth Hill, of course, is, is, is his most romantic memory with with Molly, who he um, he remembers during his lunch. Um, at uh, of at David Burns, of seed, cake, right? uh, seed cake exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, where Molly puts the seed cake in his mouth, it's the, the happiest moment of his life. And now, <laughs> why are
2: you laughing? What is the?
1: What? No, it's just funny. It's, it's just... literally the
2: ha... Come on. We just had a very tender moment about Molly, and now you're, you're ridiculing Bloom <laughs> over just his It's cake. Just, that's the
1: happiest moment. So his,
3: <laughs> his moment of his... purest connection. You know what happens on June sixteenth, nineteen o four, in real life? When it's, his wife, it's, it's Joyce gets a hand job from Nora. That's the happiest moment of his life. <laughs> what again? Like is there a hand
1: job? Is that is that the implication?
3: What do you mean? Of course that's what happens. What's what had actually happened in the world on June 6th, 1904? Nothing except for Joyce went on a date with Nora Barnacle and got a hand know, job.
1: How do you know that he got a handjob?
3: Everyone knows he got a hand job.
1: <laughs> Did you know that he got a hand job? I,
2: I I've been made aware that that was
1: I had no <laughs> that idea that was a hand job. So, subtext. so what might
3: seem trivial to you <laughs> it horrible. Is, What might seem
1: trivial to you And that's why it's called the seed cake. Oh my god. <laughs>
3: Look, we can, we can, we can, you know, we can put down the, the, a the, the golden the moments the golden, of connection. to Joyce, <laughs> to James Joyce, to a sexually repressed Catholic in Dublin <gasps> in 1904. Who am I to judge? What's must, it like to be James Joyce? Why, why you know, what's it like to be a giving, bad? Giving you know, job. we, don't, we, we don't, <laughs> I think Nora was very skilled. We don't give
2: these Jones. episodes titles, but if we did, this one would be called the handjob subtext. <laughs> <laughs>
3: We've been watching Seinfeld uh, in my house so recently. Continue for your next. Your okay, so next he gets the plums. He's he gets the leave. plums. So what? what Bloom says? Is he gets the plums. Meaning boil, and I get the plum stones. And we remember, of course, that Stephen had. This is this is crazy. So Stephen. So Stephen had had of course tried to get his his buddies interested in the story of the plums and the plum stones earlier in the day, and so uh, um, Stuart Gilbert uh, says this is another little moment of telepathy. Uh, where we see these, these moments where Bloom and Steven connect on this other level, this level of thought, um, the plums and the plumstones, I kind of like that. And then the last thing was that he also reflects uh, just a page later about what had happened in the, in the pub in Cyclops. Um, and you know, he, he is almost um, apologetic. You know He sort of says, got my own back there, drunken ranters. What I said about his God made him wince. Mistake to hit back. Or no, ought to go home and laugh at themselves. So yet again, the two-eyedness of Bloom, mm. you know, now on the beach after his little um fantasy with, with Gertie is is uh, comes comes again to the fore.
2: Mm. And so just as a final point to leave it on, as Alice mentioned in her recap, Bloom writes an unfinished sentence in the sand. Yeah. Mm. I am a cuckoo. <laughs> okay. <laughs>
3: the, he also, that's your... okay. So it could be cuckoo, and yeah. we we and we get the horns of the oxen um coming right up, but there's also he throws the stick. Into the and and it sticks right like perfectly into the into the beach. it's like, "Wow, you couldn't do that if you tried for a week." And because Molly had called him a stick in the mud, there's oh. that there's the joke that maybe I am a stick in the mud,
1: or maybe he's referencing the Book of John.
3: Yeah, tell us. <laughs> well, first let's John do the, the recap, Evangelist. Let's do the recap. On to oxen of the sun, Deschil Halles iemus, meaning let's go down, or actually let's go clockwise uh, to. Hollis Street. Hollis Street is uh, the address of the lying in hospital. And so for this little recap, I am calling, I'm phoning a friend. I'm getting Frank Budgeon, the um, the painter and consular officer and erstwhile drinking companion of, of James Joyce, who wrote this wonderful book um, and whose uh, copy I have in my hands, George Whitman's uh, copy. So he says, Thank you, Shakespeare and Company. From the fresh air and vast open spaces of the seashore, we enter a den where medical students and others are foregathered for drink and talk. The young men are drinking basses number one, which is a most potent mead, and their loud, coarse talk drowns, except for instance, the cries of women in travail for they are in the lying in-hospital at Hollis Street, conducted by Dr. Andrew Horne. Bloom, on on leaving Sandy Mount Shore, calls to inquire after the progress of Mrs. Purefoy, who has been three days in labor. While standing hat in hand, talking to the nurse in the vestibule, he is hailed by the young house surgeon, Dixon, who attended him for a wasp sting sometime before. We'll see the wasp turn into a a dragon in the medieval uh, section of this uh, chapter. He demurs at first to Dixon's invitation to join them, but only to keep the good opinion of the nurse, who finds all this merriment and insobriety unseemly. Eventually, however, yields to the doctor's persuasion and joins the young drinkers of ale. After the sweet air and subtle sounds of Sandy Mount Beach, the reek of beer and tobacco and the clamor of men's voices. After the physical space of the seashore, the spaceless labyrinth of the human conscience and the physical space of the womb. The oxen of the sun is says Budgeon, with the exception, perhaps, of Ithaca, more symbolical than any episode in the book. The chaste, faithful nurse is the ovum. Bloom, the vital principle, is the spermatozoan. Stephen, the growing and expanding soul, is the embryo. And all are contained within the womb for which the maternity hospital of Dr. Horn is symbol. All Bloom's companions are young, unmarried men. He is married and the father of two children. They who are neither chaste nor parents are the slayers of the sacred animals, for they enjoy the pleasures of love, but by all means at their disposal prevent its fruitfulness. By their luxury and indulgence, possible souls and bodies are denied the entry into life and experience. So the, the reference here is to book 12 of the Odyssey where the uh, Odysseus and his men, sailing from Circe's island, they pass skill in Charybdis. Uh, it's getting to be nighttime and they're um, about to pull up aside the island of Trinacria, we call Sicily. Trinacria meaning the triangular island. Check your, check your maps. Um, Circe has warned them not to touch uh, the cattle on this island, which belong to Helios. Helios is the son of Zeus, the god of the sun. Uh, these are sacred cattle. They're symbols of fertility. Don't touch and the crew, we they get marooned on the shore. They can't leave because of bad weather. They run out of food. And so Odysseus is going in to pray. He falls asleep. The crew then decides they're going to slaughter six days' worth of cattle. Um, they leave uh, on a deceptively fair day. Zeus destroys the ship with a thunderbolt, of which Odysseus is the only survivor, having been the only one not to partake, as Bloom is the only one not to get drunk uh, in this room, after which Odysseus is beached on Calypso's island. And. Um, he has, to that extent, uh, Bloom, obeyed the law and can absolve himself from guilt. Even while they are sitting in the student's room in front of their beer, bread, and sardines, the voice of the god is heard outside. A noise in the street. This is what Stephen said god was uh, to, uh, to his colleague Dezi at the school. A noise in the street. It is the thunder god, boom, who, according to Vico, drove his terrifying voice and fierce lightnings, shameless primitive people, to hide their fornications in caves and to begin civilized life, Stephen is afraid of thunder. He no more believes in the sky god than in Christ's salvation, but he is afraid of them both. The others are too drunk to care. The style has changed with the mood and motive. The novelette style of Gertie McDowell and the truncated sentences of Bloom's unspoken thoughts have given place to a parade of costume styles resembling a historical pageant. After a short opening suggestive of conception and birth, the episode is introduced with what Joyce called in a letter to me, Nice little humble brag there. A Sallustian Tacitian prelude, Sallust and Tacitus being uh, writers of the of the first and century BC and AD, respectively. The unfertilized ovum. From that, the action proceeds through nine parts, but without divisions, to the birth of Mrs. Purefoy's child. From alliterative, monosyllabic early English, the prose passes in chronological sequence through progressive styles of literary English, so Anglo Saxon to medieval to chivalry to Elizabethan to 18th century satire, Gothic, 19th century Dickens, and ultimately. Um, What he says in the festive youth rush from Horn's house to Burke's pub in the no style at all slang of half drunken human utterance, pigeon English, Cockney, Irish, Scots, Welsh, Bowery slang, American slang and broken doggerel, a torrent of living and therefore except to the present uh, to those present half incomprehensible speech. I'm just gonna give one little, uh, one little. I, I
1: imagine what you say today. One
3: little button on this recap here. Bloom. Uh, this is, says one little last bit of a budgeon Bloom is here shown as a staunch defender of womanhood. He is always susceptible to women's physical charms, as we've just seen. But in this house of birth, he is particularly sympathetic to their woes. His common sense is proof against the mysteries of religions. The mysterious destiny, however, that lays upon one half of the human race the pain of childbirth is one before which he bows. When Lenehan pours him out a drink, he takes it and drinks to his companion's health. But while all are drinking as much as they can, he drinks as little as possible. And this is not entirely the defensive attitude of the prudent member. It is because Bloom feels that too much drink and noise in a house of birth is inhuman and unseemly. And another reason, and this is where it ends, is that he sees that Stephen is getting drunk. And Bloom feels drawn towards Stephen, whom he's already seen three times that day. His thoughts of his own dead son, of Bloom's own dead son, are given in a mort d'Arthur style, Thomas Mallory. And now Sir Leopold, that had of his body no man child for an heir, looked upon him his friend's son and was shut up in sorrow for his forepast happiness. And as sad as he was that him failed a son of such gentle courage, for all accounted him of real parts, Stephen. So grieved he also in no less measure for young Stephen for that he lived riotously with those westrels and murdered his goods with whores.
2: Thank you, Lex. Now, that description of it makes the chapter sound extraordinary and important. And <laughs> I th- and, it, and it is. And, 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 and I think it is. Um, I should also, though, express that I think I found this a slog. I found it a slog the first time I read it. I found it a slog the second time I read it. I found it a slog the third time I read it, having read around it a lot. Now, it pains me to say that because I know Anthony Burgess, who I love, found said that this was his favorite chapter in um in the in the whole of Ulysses. And there is so much to admire about the prowess uh, Joyce shows and his mastery of these um of these styles. But I do want to, and I because I'm sure a lot of our listeners and readers may be feeling the same at this point. It's it it is it is hard going, um, and I just want to I just want to represent that uh, that constituency in our listeners because I think there there is definitely um, the more you read about it, the more accessible it becomes, the more impressive it becomes, the more important it becomes. But I I think there is a question to be asked about whether the um I, gu- I guess the means justifies the ends <laughs> in uh in this case um but in order to in order to, to
1: or whether you can just kind of skip the means and and say that everything is going to get easier after the yeah end. this exactly. was this
3: was the, the the only chapter i first time read that i really just yeah skipped 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 through the first time so
2: let's let's try and find out then so through the the question Budgeon referred to this costume parade of uh of english literary styles why? What's going on here?
3: So should we, should we give a couple little pearls just so our, our listeners can, can understand what we mean by this costume parade because I do think there's just some absolutely wonderful lines in, in Ox and the Sun that are you know it's, it's hard going the first time. but so um, he Bloom is at the door and we get this style of almost you know early uh, uh, middle English. Some man that wayfaring was stood by house door at night's oncoming. Of Israel's folk was that man that on earth wandering far had fared. Stark ruth of man his errand that him lone led till that house. Her to forgive now he craved with good ground of her. Allowed that that of him swift seen face hers. So young then had looked. Light swift her eyes kindled. Bloom of blushes his word winning. I think it's kind of nice. I
2: mean, it's, it's 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 very it's very accomplished. Okay, here we go. So then we it says
3: the novelist who's wincing over here. Our, our three, three three thrice published novelist, Adam Biles, um, thrice? And then, well, nearly thrice, <laughs> one less than thrice. Um i mean i think this is a publication of some kind so and then and then when the thunderclap happens now we're in mm-hmm. 17th century sir thomas brown pastiche a black crack of noise in the street here alack, bawled back loud on left thord thundered in anger awful the hammer hurler come now the storm that hissed his heart um and then you know they're they're all uh they're all kind of reacting to this thunder and i love this um uh, Master Madden, being godly certain wiles, knocked him on his ribs upon that crack of doom, and Master Bloom, at the braggart's side, spoke to him calming words to slumber his great fear, advertising how it was no other thing but a hubbub noise that he heard, the discharge of fluid from the thunderhead, look you, having taken place, and all of the order of a natural phenomenon." We get the natural phenomenon again. And then, of course, he takes this up in the in Paul Bunyan in, um, Bunyan's, uh, not Paul Bunyan, John Bunyan's uh, Pilgrim's Progress. For through that tube, he saw that he was in the land of phenomenon, capital P, where he must for, for a certain one day die as he was like the rest to a passing show. So we're getting this, you know, we're getting this incredibly flowery prose. Uh, and in this, I think it's fun. And I think it's also uh, fu- he's making fun of these different styles and seeing that he can master them and and, and conquer them. but. You know, about things that are actually, I think, um, you know, actually helping the plot. You have these medical students who are, um, you know, blasé, seen it all before, riotous, don't respect anybody. You have Stephen who is haunted by his fears, his kind of the fears that have been driven into him by Mm -hmm. the Jesuit priests. And you have Bloom who is trying to, you know, look at the world through a kind of a naturalist and and rational uh, and curious uh, way. And all done in this in this in these uh, languages. The last little bit, um, the Gothic. Uh, but Malachi's tale began to freeze them with horror. He conjured up the scene before them. The secret panel beside the chimney slid back, and in the recess appeared Haynes! Which of us did not feel his flesh creep? So these are just some examples of this costume parade of of him going from you know thirteenth century to seventeenth century to nineteenth century uh, in just a couple pages.
1: So I, I have a few points um, to make. The first is that it reminds me of Iolus uh, and the blowiness of newspaper speak because i think there's a sense of the kind of bluriness of style throughout uh-huh. the ages and there's there is here again we push yeah. up um what what do we discover by zooming in or drawing back and he's drawing back and he's saying um look how vastly different uh style has been over the years um and this is a point that Kibbard makes he writes by aligning so many styles side by side joyce makes the reader keenly aware of just <clears throat> how little anyone's style can do and how much more is excluded rather than included by it i think in some sense he's holding it up uh to ultimately reject style and again i think style here is more insidious i think it's really important that this comes right after um the style of gertie's kind of conscious ha- vogue. yeah how it's rendered because he's saying that Possibly, he's suggesting, in the way that we see Gertie is entrapped by the style of her era. These past eras have been entrapped by these previous styles. Um, So it could be funny, but it could also be more serious. I think there's also a point to be made about the language um, in which he's writing. So he's writing all of this in English. Um, But in some sense, both the language and even more clearly the style in which the language is rendered, these are totally arbitrary. And the the point that I can use to make this is that in the 14th century when Chaucer began writing the Canterbury Tales, it wasn't at all clear at that moment that English would be the prevailing language. Mm. And in fact, his contemporary, love this, John Gower, uh, who was much more concerned with posterity than Chaucer was, um, wrote the same poem, Confessio Amanatis. In English, French, and Latin, Hmm. as a way to say, well, it's going to be one of them (laughs) (laughs) English, French, or Latin. And so I'm going to take no risks. Um, And so, you know, if if the language itself, uh, the way that that kind of unfolds is arbitrary, then. These styles are also arbitrary.
3: And it's a very good point, and and and. Oh, well, thank you so much. Well, no, I mean, but, it, but it, it, it links perfectly to another one of Kybert's points that I I loved uh, in this chapter, the subversive. He calls this a, a subversive reverse anthology because mm-hmm. just as the English, as you as you pointed out, had been conquered by the Normans and mm-hmm. Norman French. In, in Chaucer's lifetime and really until the Renaissance was the aristocratic language of of, of England and the language mm-hmm. of court which is why you know the, sh- the sheep in the field are called sheep but in inside it's called mutton because mm-hmm. mutton is mouton and Morning. you know the cow is in the field and beef, you know beef is in the is mm-hmm. in, it's, it's the, the Norman French was what was on the table um, and the peasants were in the field but um but by the time of of Joyce the English of course had conquered a quarter of the known world mm. and and so and
1: colonized and
3: colonized and and one of the ways that colonized it was with literature yeah. and 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 one of and the language. one of the points that kyber makes which i which really helped me look at this chapter in a totally new way is that mm. why is joyce dressing up all of these styles of english and essentially throwing them back in the faces of 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 uh of proper you know readers is that um, this english canon had been forced down the throats of the irish mm. and so it's mm. in a sense an act of subversion and defiance for an irish writer to say oh you think these writers are great i can master all of their styles mm. make fun of mm. them throw them back and do you one better mm. but with this book called ulysses which no one you know no one had ever written a, a chapter like this mm. in english literature before yeah. so yeah. it's i think an act of a rebel in yeah. a sense to, yeah. to yeah. take to, I, to string totally all these styles agree. together
1: i totally agree um, I would just make another point. so uh, it, it's this it's this idea of word becoming flesh um in the sense that again, we go back to Gertie, that that, that the, the the words that she's reading actually like take form on her body in in the mm. colors that ah. she's wearing, in the makeup that she's wearing in the way that she's physically sitting. um and this is this Joyce would have known this as a preoccupation of anyone who's uh, had a religious upbringing or read the Bible. Um, any context and it begins uh really with the book of john um which is so beautiful um uh the last of the gospels the last of the gospels there were four of them um and it famously opens in the beginning i'll just read it and then you can understand and then i'll explain a little bit about why i'm bringing it up in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the world was was god uh he was with god in the beginning through him all things were made without him nothing was made that has been made and then i'm jumping because this is the key point the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us we have seen his glory the glory of the one and only son who came from the father Mm. full of grace and truth what does it mean uh, for the Word to become flesh well Mm. different um iterations of of Uh, This religion will interpret it in different ways. But there are kind of two main, um, I think, points that Joyce is pushing up against here. One is transubstantiation and consubstantiation. So transubstantiation is the conversion of the substance of the Eucharist elements into the body uh, and the blood of Christ at um, the consecration. And so this, this will appear as bread or wine and then consubstantiation is the doctrine especially in lutheran belief that the substance of the bread and wine can actually coexist with the body and blood of christ in the eucharist so one is transmuted and, and others um uh, and this is the point co-exist. that divided uh,
3: Catholics and Protestants, right. Right? Which, are, which was a major division on the Irish island still today. Right. Yeah, the Catholics were transubstantiation and, and uh, Protestants consubstantiation.
1: Right. And so this, this is going to get to the center of, we're going to talk about the kind of the uh, overtones of anxiety in, in, the, in the episode. But um, what does it mean for somebody to create flesh and what does it mean for somebody <laughs> to create words? And in this case, um, it has a long uh religious uh history i'm able to say
3: as a parenthesis it, it actually what you're saying is is it goes okay. even a further back into antiquity because the word that paul uh, word that john the evangelist is writing is logos right X R K logos in the beginning was the logos mm-hmm. which which means so many things in greek it means both word tongue, speech, and also reason and the order of the universe, right? Mm. And so in English, we don't have that connotation of the, yeah, yeah. of the word word. We just mean word, but logos touches on all those things.
1: I'm so glad you brought up antiquity because that was the second point I wanted to make about the book of John is that um, he's grappling with Plato in it. And it comes up more towards the end when um, Jesus has been, um, he's been on trial, of course, uh, and, and, and he's condemned to death. And this this gets to I really think directly to the I am dot 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 um, because not only does Pilate uh, say it's very important what's being written in in the end of John this is this is book um, oh this is chapter chapter nineteen thank you um, he says that he 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 makes the point of saying do not write uh, the king of the Jews but write that this man claimed to be the king of Jews so he's thinking about writing as a way to mm. secure uh identity yeah Christ's identity and then um pilot writes what i have written i have written so this is a sense of of something kind of ineffable becoming concrete and then to subvert it even more and this is why the book of john is so brilliant um once jesus who's again kind of is is he a man is he is he a spirit who is he right before he dies he says i'm thirsty and he calls for something to drink, and so again, it's subverting the tensions between um, the physical and the non-physical. Mm. And uh, and I think the final thing I would say is that the what I have written, I have written, also reminds us of the very very famous uh, moment in Exodus, um, where uh, God says to Moses, "Yahweh, I am who I am." Voilà.
0: Voilà. Mm. <laughs>
3: So I mean, this is uh, this ta- this taps in. I think what what Joyce is, is trying to achieve a kind of a liberation mm. um, from his his predecessors, uh, biblical and literary, philosophical, and but using of course all their tools, right? Mm. As, as you mm. as you have have um, have given us, and uh, you know, Kybert says this is this is the chapter where the book is finally born. Um, mm. That he has to, in a sense, process and develop all of these styles um from um now it's interesting that he doesn't he doesn't skewer his his most respected predecessors who are, are Chaucer and, and Shakespeare. Chaucer mm-hmm. and Shakespeare do not get the, the pastiche costume drama treatment in, in Oxen of the Sun. Um but everybody else it's almost as if he needs to dispatch them and see them off mm-hmm. by this this costume parade in order to free himself. And and Kyber says it marks the end of Joyce's involvement with writerly tradition. Everything from the next page of Circe on is a medley of voices more oral than written. And mm. on meaning mm. on through all of Finnegan's wake. Yeah. Um, it, this is like this is Joyce um, you know, done and dusted with with all of English literature mm. and, and developing something completely different that will follow and that Samuel Beckett will will smack with his tennis racket.
2: <laughs> but I think also the interesting thing, of course, and you alluded to this, Alice, is the the juxtaposition of um the word the creation of the word mm. and the literal flesh. creation of flesh which mm-hmm. you know this is all te- this is a, telling the story of men waiting in a maternity hospital mm. while in the next room or just down the corridor an actual it's physical very difficult. human with much difficulty into 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 life and I think that's sort of a part of me when when reading these um, these parodies which is essentially what they are it seems to me Joyce perhaps sort of almost undermining the effort of literature to turn word into flesh, or, you know, almost saying like, you know, this is, this is something which is sort of these, these sort of insignificant men can play at doing in this room a little way mm-hmm. down from when something of great significance, or happening, significance right. is happening. But
1: also this was the moment in which um, Joyce and Stephen or Joyce and Stephen um Came up with the idea of the book, right? So right, and and to to
3: that? and so what you say, yes, what you said Adam, about this this anxiety about uh, about labor, about fertility, that you said insignificant. I mean, one of the uh, one of the obvious reasons why this drunken party is happening in a maternity ward is uh, a deep insecurity and and even fear. Of this power that women have to to Absolutely. to create life, yeah. and that Stephen has deep anxiety about his ability to create, mm-hmm. um, and Bloom has a deep um, anxiety, I'd say, and a and, um, mm-hmm. melancholy about his failure to, or well, his failure to keep alive their their son, mm-hmm. and a uh, feeling that his his teenage daughter is now. Um, uh, you know, distant from him, and and so you have the, this anxiety that hangs over this party um, mm-hmm. that seems to be so irreverent, and it's actually very very funny, um, especially when Buck Mulligan enters as he always does. But um, that that it there's this there's the phrase the, these god possible souls that we nightly impossibilize. Mm-hmm. And Joyce said to Budgeon that you know the, the the sterilization of coition was the crime of Odysseus's men against the against the oxen of the sun, mm-hmm. and that's what he was drawing out in this. Um, in this uh, in this chapter, but you, you asked the question also what does this have to do with 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 uh, with Ulysses the book and and this is something that um, I, I learned that that Ulysses was based on or the very first when did Ulysses first begin as an idea so there's a postcard that. Um, that Stephen uh, that sorry that Joyce that James Joyce sends his brother Stanislaus. He refers to an idea that he has for a new short story called Ulysses. This is in 1906. A short story. A short story <laughs> called Ulysses, um, based on a man named Alfred Hunter. Now, who is Alfred Hunter? And many Joyce scholars have tried to find out. Well, the best we can we can surmise is that he was. Um, a Dubliner, um, of uh, he was an advertising canvasser, that um, Joyce had apparently told somebody uh, that in June 1904, he had been involved in a drunken altercation. He was walking through a park and, pe- and people roughed him up and, and took his wallet and one of his friends ran away. And this we'll see in chapter Circe's, uh, Circe, that Stephen also was abandoned by a friend in a, in a moment of need. And this stranger, this dark stranger came and helped him. And this stranger's name in real life, Alfred Hunter, and Joyce thought that he was Jewish. Um, at least this is what we this is what we surmise. And so that in that moment of jo- of young James Joyce being helped up on his feet by this dark stranger is the beginning of of, 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 uh, of Ulysses, the mm. book. And so Kybert writes, you know, Stephen and Bloom are now sitting around a table um, uh, in in the maternity hospital. And Kuypert writes, part of Stephen's frustration is his own lack of creativity, a parallel to Bloom's lack of procreativity. For he needs, Stephen needs more than a capful of light odes uh, before he can call his genius father. In a truly radical sense, that depression will be finally lifted, not just by Bloom's kindness, but by the flash of insight in which Stephen learns that he can immortalize his ordinary rescuer in a great book. And, and writing the book Ulysses becomes the answer to his depression to, you know, Stephen slash Joyce's um, depression. And you see all through this book, people know that Stephen's a genius, but he hasn't really lived up to it. And, and, um, and, you know, this, this great, uh, this great phrase, um, uh, you know, that Vincent is, is, is uh, Lynch, his, his companion, uh, Stephen puts drunkenly some some leaves on his head as a, as a you know, Olympian crown. Mm-hmm. And, and Lynch says to him, um, that answer and those leaves will adorn you more fitly when something more and greatly more than a capful of light odes can call your genius Father. All who wish you well hope this for you. Is the life of the yeah. artist possible? And then they're toasting to Theodore Purfoy, the father of ten children, whose wife has just given birth. Thou art Purfoy, I vow, the remarkablest progenitor, mm-hmm. barring none in this chaffering, all-including, most feraginous chronicle. <laughs> Feragin, uh, F- is a is a, a medley. So this chaffering, all-including, most feraginous chronicle, which Stuart Gilbert says this is a pretty good description of Ulysses, the book. So <laughs> we, this chapter gives birth to the young Purfoy child, mm-hmm. and in a way gives birth to. Ulysses, the
2: book. That's really extraordinary.
1: I wanted to just um, also pick up on this idea of anxiety because I think that um, when societies become anxious about the changes that are happening in their society, that anxiety can land in several places. Mm -hmm. It can land on language and controlling um, the language that's being spoken. I say that very pointedly, knowing that we're in France and that there's this thing called uh, L'Académie Francaise. Uh, whose official mission um, is to uh, treat with as much care as possible um, notre langue, so our language, and to make it pure and eloquent and able to in turn treat the arts and sciences. Um, The Académie Française uh, is very prescriptive about the French that it would like um, French people to be using. It's very uh, scared of and anti... um, what. a lot of people called um l'anglais abusive so like abusive use of english mm-hmm. the, the, the idea that you don't need to use english uh, when they've created all of these french words um for you to use instead the other place that the anxiety lands i think again this is important given um the place of this episode is on women's bodies mm-hmm. um so whether that's uh, about abortion rights whether that's about uh, marriage rights um, just how women are controlled in society yeah. um, because because they're they're the they're the guards of the next generation yeah yeah, yeah. just as languages in some ways and I,
2: I think that's um, I mean that's bringing uh, lexes and your points together about this sort of this anxiety this fear that men <laughs> have of the power of women um, I mean that's uh, uh, ultimately yeah. what under underlies the the structure of the patriarchy you know that is founded on this fear Mm. of women's power of Mm. of creation Mm. and um Mm. and you know and i think it's really interesting this this thing of the the sighting of the maternity hospital because um yeah having been present for the birth of my daughter i mean it is utterly transformative Mm. um moment in everybody's life when you see that you bear witness to that power i could completely sort of you know it, the, your whole your whole sense in the sort of the the mm. the the structures that we've built up the sort of the the things that as men in many ways we we've raised as important and we attribute value to are just cut down and we yeah. are ridiculous little clowns in service exactly. of women and i am exactly. ready to repeat that anyway and, <laughs> and you... i'm
3: about to re- to experience
2: it you, yeah yeah
1: you've never written a sentence since <laughs> i barely have <laughs> But, but, but not the feminist <laughs> yeah that's
2: that's one a uh, one very ah! uh, important boon my daughter has brought to the world
1: <laughs> she shut me up merci Anouk. <laughs>
2: Should we go on to some notables before we wrap up?
3: Yes, I, 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 I have a couple. Um, one, one, um, is I love the moment where Buck Mulligan and Leopold Bloom finally meet. Buck Mulligan really flowers as a complete, uh, an utter, eloquent, uh, and Gosh. hilarious jerk uh, in this, <laughs> in this, in this, in this episode. He, I mean, so, I mean, his, 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 his riff about he's he has, uh, you know, great civic idea of creating a national fertilizing farm called Umphalos where he will be the the stud and. <laughs> All oh, yeah, of the women is. who want to get pregnant will come in and be impregnated by him. It's very um, kind
1: of like Anthropocene climate change. Uh, it's just—it's
3: unbelievable. And then, and then, uh, Bloom is looking I kind of sober it. and serious, and Buck sort of is offended that Bloom is not, you know, laughing along with his joke. Pracer, uh was in need of any professional assistance we could give, as if he knows that that Bloom uh, is having troubles uh, in his in his home. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you get this incredible um, contrast between Buck Mulligan, who's this kind of scientific, educated show-off who respects nothing, cares for no one uh, but himself, and Bloom, who yet again, in even being put down, being condescended to, is never failingly respectful of, in this case, the place and the and the setting of the of the maternity ward. Uh, he's curious, uh he's kind hearted, he does care. Even if he's caught in this, you know, patriarchal society, he he really does want to um, break out of those uh those those strictures. Um Another uh, noticeable um, to return us to a, a past episode where we talked a, about Martin Scorsese's um, mm. The Departed. Uh, those of those of you Bloomcast listeners, in touch, so I assume he's not Martin listening. Scorsese has not yet, uh, <laughs> or William Monahan, the writer of the of The Departed, the great movie with um, Matt Damon, Leonardo DiCaprio, uh, Mark Wahlberg, etc. <laughs> as if
1: you needed any more men. <laughs> um, as if you needed any more men. Well,
3: but his, his is the point, right? So so besides the fact that The Departed sounds quite uh, quite familiar to those who have read a, a Joyce story called The Dead. Um, and, we, we and, we, and we mentioned last time that the only uh, corpse in, in Ulysses um, shares the name with the only living character at the end of The Departed, Dignum, played by Mark, mm-hmm. Mark Wahlberg. And then I read, uh, at rewriting Oxen of the Sun, I was like, wait a second, there's a character, the drunken, rowdy um, bully, kind of animalistic bully, um, and his name is Francis Frank Punch Costello. Mm-hmm. And I looked back at the part and said, what is Jack Nicholson's character's name? Jack mm. Nicholson, who plays the Irish gangster, Frank Francis Costello. Great. Right. I mean, so William Monaghan, we're on to you. In other words, <laughs> Scorsese and Monaghan, we're on to you guys. Um, and then my, my last little noticeable is I loved the moment um, where Bloom remembers the night he meets Molly. There's a, this kind of garden party and he remembers that he saw another job. a little a little boy. <laughs> What, why are we why are we so mean to hand, about hand jobs today? They can be glorious moments to some, um, and and uh, and and so Bloom is remembering this night where he meets, he meets his future wife. And he remembers seeing a little boy of four or five years old with a look on his face, and realizes that Stephen Dedalus was there, mm. right? And so here's the, here's a little passage. Uh, And they're playing lawn bowling uh, outside of of this garden party. A shaven space of lawn, one soft May evening, this is 18 years before, the well-remembered grove of lilacs, round town, purple and white, fragrant slender spectators of the game, but with much real interest in the pellets as they run slowly forward over the sward or collide and stop, one by its fellow with a brief alert shock, a lad of four or five in Lindsay Woolsey, Blossom time, but there will be cheer in the kindly hearth where ere long the bowls are gathered and hutched, is standing on the urn, secured by that circle of girlish fond hands. He frowns a little, just as this young man does now, with a perhaps too conscious enjoyment of danger, but must needs glance at wiles towards where his mother watches, from the Piazzetta, giving upon the flower close with a faint shadow of remoteness or of reproach in her glad look so this memory of steven and his mother on the night where he meets molly i just love i love that moment of the child Stephen with his little frown
1: Mm -hmm. i have it's it's not necessarily noticeable it's just a final thought that has really stayed with me um as a a way to also return to a point that i made an earlier episode about um yeah i suppose the word becoming flesh or um the the in the infinity of possibilities becoming one in one possibility you know like having a child inside of you and actually giving birth to it I think um and it's why possibly men (laughs) feel um disappointed after after having an orgasm certainly women don't but um (laughs) uh it's I I for me and I I know writer's block um, can be very frustrating of course but the beauty lies in the in the possibility of what one might write, the possibility of all the ideas. And it's actually, um, there's something, um, troubling and, uh, difficult about having to put something to paper, uh, or actually having to give birth to the thing it's for me, the, the beauty is, is in the, is in the possibility. And that's what, um, to go back to the Aristotelian idea between, um, history and poetry. You know, so while history is to describe what happened, poetry again is to describe the thing um, as it might be or could have been. Um, So,
2: thank you. Well, I think we're going to wrap up there. Join us. Oh, Lex has one more thing he wants to leap in with. No, no, he doesn't, does he? (laughs) I was going to say, upon
3: the utterance of the word, and do you remember the word that they all shout together to go out to the pub? What are they? Burks! we're going out to Burkes pub. We're going out to so, Uh We're going out to Burkes. We'll that be back doing, in a few weeks'
2: saying. time with uh, an episode entirely dedicated to sassy. Oh, um, good.
1: Oh, so only one reading next time. Only yeah. one reading
3: of 180 pages. Yeah. You're fine.
1: That's <laughs> okay. okay.
3: It goes fast. It goes. It's a play. It goes fast. Exactly. And it's the craziest oh, it's thing. A play. It's the craziest thing you'll ever read.
1: Oh, which which is like maybe I think it's probably inherited from maybe Dick, in the sense that it's playing. See,
3: watching Alice discover this, but honestly, that made my day. <laughs> <laughs> you just, just looking at Cersei for the first. Pr- no, it made my day. No, the uh, hand job did not make well, my day. Uh, made Joyce's day though.
2: Until then, take care.
3: Uh, happy reading.
1: À très bientôt.
2: is being brought into yeah very difficultly yeah being brought very yeah. with great difficulty with great difficulty thank you <laughs> into uh, English sucks sometimes
3: doesn't <laughs> it, really <laughs> it really does it's so hard to t- can not say
1: difficultly it's so hard to turn <laughs> flesh into words You <laughs>
3: can say difficilement can we um, can we dispatch can we, we dispatch we this? <laughs> this so uh,